Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Five months ago today, the Russians invaded Ukraine. And think of the damage that uh, Putin and his mob have done to that country and uh, Ukraine and its military standing up to the Russians punching way above their weight. And um, five months ago today, and Ukraine signed, as we know, just a few days ago, an agreement with the United Nations with Turkey's input to ship massive amounts of grain to a hungry world. Russia signed a similar agreement with the UN, also with Turkey's input. But less than 24 hours after signing, Russia is accused of firing missiles into the Ukrainian Black Sea uh, port city of Odessa, which is where a lot of that grain will be shipped from, if you can trust the Russians. Uh, we're joined by Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovalev, is back with us. Ambassador, thank you for taking the time. Um, hello, Roy, and hello, everybody. And it's my pleasure to be with you um, the third Sunday in a row. That's right. Um, ambassador, today marks five months since the invasion of your country by Putin and his army. Would you just, uh, to, to start off our conversation, speak with us about what has been done to Ukraine and the people of Ukraine? Yes, and it's really today, it's a five months since Russia started the war and with its maniacal desire to wipe Ukraine off the earth. And during these five months, Russia used a broad types of weapons, missiles, tanks, energy, food, nuclear security threat, disinformation, blackmailing, cyber attacks, and simply the open lies. And within uh, five months, uh, not only Ukrainians, brave men and women who are holding the line now, all Ukrainian community, but also the United Democratic World stands with Ukraine. And uh, we see the historic uh, strict sanctions that were imposed for Russia for these five months. We see unprecedented military support that many of the countries uh, now uh, is providing to Ukraine. Uh, we see uh, the unity in the financial support to keep uh, Ukraine fighting for our land and for our sovereignty, but also for the security of not only the Europe, but also all the democratic world. And uh, since, uh, the, since we are in a five months uh, of the full-scale war, um, this is important that both the Ukraine is uh, fighting courage and also this um, steadfast support is keeping through all of the, uh, the partners. And I think with this five months, it's now very obvious to many countries in the world that Russia is not only fighting Ukraine, Russia's weapons, including their energy weapon, including the food weapon, are reaching far beyond the Ukrainian borders. Uh, we see the unprecedented high food prices, historically high energy prices. We see the risk of famine in many countries of the world, including uh, the, the low-income countries of Africa and Middle East. And we need to understand that all this is a part of Russian war and Russia using many other tools, except for the heavy weapons, um, to fight with, with us as Ukraine, but also to challenge 
the um, the democratic countries all, all around the planet. Yeah, um, and obviously you need continued support. You need continued military support and weapons to fight the Russians. And you've done, your country has done, and your military has done an amazing job over five months. It was expected initially that uh, your military might last three days. That was some of the prognostication going in in, in February. Ambassador, please, uh, let's look at what's happened over the last couple of days. Ukraine has signed an agreement um, to ship your grain. I believe it's millions of tons of grain. Signed it with the United Nations and with Turkey's assistance. Do you do you have concerns about being able to follow through on this, carry through on this? Because Russia and Putin, who signed a similar deal, not with Ukraine, but with the UN and, and with Turkey's participation as well, immediately um, Putin attacked Odessa. So do you have concerns about being able to follow through on the agreement that you signed simply because the Russians may not, may not step aside? Uh, look, we understand how much... Um, the necessity of food um, is required to many countries of the world. We understand together with our partners and, li- uh, and allies that um, weaponizing food is also providing the threat uh, on a global food security. And uh, we, are, we are desperately looking on different efforts and how to in- increase the grain export from Ukraine. From the very first months of the war, we already increased significantly the export from Ukraine through the Western borders. But there are the, the limitations. So the export corridors that we developed to, together with our European partners are less than 50% of those volumes that were carrying through the Black Sea ports. So it's not enough. If we look on even the um, grain storage that is in Ukraine from the uh, previous harvest, it will take around six, seven months just to deliver this uh, previous harvest to the um, uh, to the global market, and we are expecting the new harvest to come. So, understanding this and that there is no other alternative um, than Ukrainian grain for these volumes in the next four, five years, we understand how much important it is to unlock the export through the Black Sea ports. And Ukraine um, uh, will, is, uh, have done a lot of efforts for this to happen. And on Friday, there was agreement signed, as you mentioned, uh, with Ukraine and UN and Turkey, um, uh, so-called Istanbul Initiative, uh, to unblock the Black, uh, Black Sea port and to allow Ukrainian grain to feed many countries. But it took less than 24 hours for Russia to launch a missile attack on the port of Odessa and to undermine the agreement and break the promises that Russia has made to UN and to Turkey. Um, so actually, in case of the failure to fulfill this agreement, Russia will be a full responsibility for the deepening of the global food crisis. And I think now it's obvious for everybody that Russia terrorized the world with food. Yeah, and Russia as, as well is terrorized for, uh, Europe with energy. So on our side, um, we as, as this agreement was signed, we mentioned that implementation of this agreement is crucial. From our side, we are doing uh, everything about this uh, alongside with commitment that was signed on Friday. 
and uh, we will count on uh, on our own ability to deliver the grain. However, I think now it's obvious for everybody that any talks and appeasement of Russia just only gives Russia another um, another uh, attempt to attack not only Ukraine but yeah. many countries of the world. Yeah. Ambassador, we talked about that, and uh, when these those um, turbines were shipped from Canada to Putin, and he didn't need them for Nord Stream 1. We know that. But we talked about the uh, the sanctions perhaps being, this being the first domino to uh, to violate or challenge the sanctions. Putin will take advantage of every opportunity he has. Your country, with your grain, will, will, um, will feed millions of people. And there is a huge concern, and the UN Secretary General has talked about this, huge concern about famine in the country and the world if the grain from Ukraine is not gotten to uh, the people who need it. Do you have confidence that it's going to be possible to move the Ukrainian grain, the food the world needs, through your ports, even if the Russians get in the way? In other words, you're going to need help. Um, You'll need help from NATO. You'll need help from from the international community to get the Russians out of the way. Do you believe that help would be coming? Actually, um, that that is already uh, started to happen uh, with with the agreement that was signed uh, in Istanbul with Turkey and UN. Um, however, we see that actually Russia is not uh, is actually attacking. Uh, the the seaport infrastructure in Odessa region, together with the recent attacks for the last two months on a um, big number of both the grain storage, grain infrastructure, and also on the uh, farmers' facilities. These precise attacks, to say nothing on putting the fire on Ukrainian wheat field, which is actually, I think, uh, to everybody, a very clear picture with Russia is doing with uh, putting at risk of famine many countries. Because mm-hmm. this very clear picture when the Russian army is putting the fire on tons of hectares uh, of the wheat fields, so this wheat that could feed many countries, um, that, is, uh, that is another food terrorism what we see. However, we understanding how much it is important and how valuable uh, every million of ton and every ton of grain from Ukraine is important on uh, on a global market and for many countries that uh, have been exporting this grain uh, for their consumption. We are both increasing the Western uh, route uh, to export and also preparing uh, uh, to, to open the ports. Of course, these uh, attacks within less than 24 hours after the um, initiative was signed. Um, it's a very sober. I think everybody now in the West needs to, to look sober on Russian uh, attempts, on Russian real, real attempts. Uh, but from our side, we are continuing to uh, prepare for the grain export. And uh, it's going to start with one port, uh, with the port of Chernomorsk. Uh, and then we will see how the things uh, move on. Mm-hmm. But of course, in uh, in this preparation for the food export, uh, supply of addition of weapons and supply of uh, especially of heavy weapons is crucially important for Ukraine to hold the line on the front line to protect the sea coast, 
um, because now everybody understands that uh, the protection and Ukrainian control over the sea coast of the Black Sea it's a matter of global security, yes, not it only is. For, for the security of Ukraine. Yeah. Ambassador, after five months, so five months today, Russia invaded. After five months, do you have a sense that your military, that Ukraine, with the assistance of NATO nations providing you with weapons, including heavy weapons, do you have a sense that you'll be able to push the Russians back and hold them back and maybe push them back into, into Russia? We... And actually, we, we see the development, uh, significant development of the heavy weapons supply for these five months. Uh, Ukraine is now getting more and more NATO standard weapons. And many of them are those, if we look back for the last for five months, at the beginning of the war, uh, there were many countries who said that we, we, were, we are not going to supply you these weapons. But because of the courage, and, it, uh, and because of the well-prepared Ukrainian soldiers, they are now very effectively using these heavy weapons that have been supplied to Ukraine uh, from all of our partners. And uh, they are very, uh, in a very short period of time, they are educated and well-trained on how to use this. And it's now very obvious on the front line. Uh, so with, uh, with, for example, U.S. HIMARS, that were supplied to Ukrainian soldiers and are now able to destroy uh, all the uh, weapon supply chains uh, in the occupied regions. And uh, and the heavy artillery, which was uh, also uh, supplied to Ukraine, including from Canada, that makes a difference on the front line. Yeah, I'm sure and it does. I'm sure it does. Uh, Ambassador, we have two minutes. Um, have you had more discussions with the Canadian government? Things weren't all that um, comfortable after Mr. Trudeau decided that it was going to be acceptable to move those gas turbines from Montreal back to uh, to Russia, as Putin demanded, and Germany pleaded for. Have you had more discussions with this country, and, and how are relations with Canada right now? So we do value a big support and big push that uh, can, uh, that uh, Canadian government has done in many of the areas of the sanctions. With particular turbine, I think now we everybody see, including the, the Germany, uh, that Russia using the energy as a weapon. So even if this turbine was uh, released, which we consider is, uh, is was a mistake, um, the gas flow to Europe didn't restore at, uh, at a level that uh, was, uh, was supposed to. Actually, with the turbine or without the turbine, now the gas flow to Germany is on a very low level. And there is still a threat that, uh, that Russia will stop delivering gas to Germany at all. So we see that any of the step backs from the uh, sanction regime has the contra effect. So it allows them to Russia to demand more. And the consequences of delivery of this turbine to Germany um, actually has no impact on the gas flow. We're demanding that they sign on to the Organization for Integrity in Sports uh, as a condition to flow funding. But they shouldn't be worried about satisfying the government. They should be worried about satisfying parents across the country, that they're keeping their kids safe. The huge story has to do with amateur sports or sports in this country. Now, Hockey Canada is the one that we've been talking about and we did yesterday. But there's another big story and growing issue 
and you just heard Trudeau talk about suspending funding, uh, federal funding for Gymnastics Canada. And that is we have gymnasts now over 500, we're told, a group that's uh, identifying itself as Gymnasts for Change in Canada, um, talking about uh, the um, abusive situations they were in when they were kids and uh, and and getting into gymnastics and and developing as gymnasts. Amelia Klein joins us. She's a former elite gymnast in British Columbia. She's a member of Gymnasts for Canada, and she began the process for a class action lawsuit. How are you, Amelia? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Let me start with this. What are you alleging? Let's try to make this, I don't want to make it entirely personal, but give us a sense of what it is you're alleging happened to you that caused you to turn away from the sport you love so much. Sure. So I was an elite gymnast for about 12 years. um, And unfortunately, for the last three years of that, I was subjected to uh, incredible emotional verbal and physical abuse from my coaches and that took the form of constant yelling name calling uh they instituted weighing so we would be publicly weighed at least once a week and then if we gained any weight we would be uh, yelled at told not to eat encouraged um into uh reducing our calories we were forcibly overstretched on a daily basis, um, and in my case, that resulted in uh, one instance where my coach forcibly stretched my hamstring so violently that it tore my hamstring off of my pelvis and actually um, took a piece of my pelvis with it with a oh fracture. <laughs> so um, we were forced to train on injuries, broken fingers, broken toes. Um, Most of the time, if you were injured, it wasn't sufficient to stop or to modify your training. Um, And we were forced to do skills we weren't ready to do. So we were exposed to incredible risk and um, serious risk of significant injury as well. Yeah. And you weren't supposed to tell your parents about what was going on. They were not supposed to know. No, never. It was made very clear to us that we should never be disclosing. And how young were you when this started? What age were you? Uh, I was about 10 years old when those coaches arrived. Wow. So here we are, and I feel somewhat guilty, actually. I think we all should uh, in, in our business because this story has been available to us for some considerable period of time. I just saw it the, about a week ago, and I thought we need to follow up here. And and I'm so glad you're talking to us because there's another aspect to this, not only the federal government suspending the funding of Gymnastics Canada, but you have told me that what you'd love to see and what you believe is absolutely necessary is a third-party investigation so that Gymnastics Canada cannot establish a narrative. What are your concerns in that regard? That's right. I mean, since I've come forward, I wrote a blog about my experiences about two years ago. And since I did that, I've been flooded personally with hundreds of anecdotes from gymnasts um, who range in age from, they were training in the 70s and 80s to 16, 17, 18-year-olds now. Um, and it's very clear that these abuses are still ongoing. They're still widespread. And uh, what we really need is a fulsome investigation to figure out why these things are happening, how they're occurring, who's enabling it, who's perpetrating it, and how can we stop it. And it's really not until we understand those things and until we remove the people who are perpetrating these things that anything's going to change in the sport. Now, do you think that you would be getting the national and even international attention you're getting now if there weren't the Hockey Canada story developing at the same time? I think um, 
It's complicated. I think the Hockey Canada situation um, certainly deserves all the attention that it's getting, but I think it does sort of highlight that um, this is not just a hockey problem. It's not even just a gymnastics problem. It's a sport problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have benefited, I think, from some of the wider discussion about abuse in sport generally. And certainly we've benefited from things like the uh, Larry Nassar scandal in the U.S. And, and all of the dialogue that's been coming out of the yeah. U.S. with um, those scandals. So we we certainly have benefited from some of this dialogue happening already. Um, my hope is that having 500 survivors coming forward should be sufficient in and of itself to get some attention, but sometimes that's not the case. Well, it should, and I hope the pressure continues to be applied. What was available to you to raise your concerns within Gymnastics Canada at the time you were a child? And did you did you share your fears and your experiences with your parents and other adults at the time it was happening? So immediately after I quit, I shared with my parents what had been happening in the gym, and of course they were horrified. So there wasn't really much in the way of resources to know where to report, how to report. What we ultimately ended up doing was reporting it to Gymnastics BC, which was the federal or the uh, provincial federation, and uh, they conducted some sort of investigation and ensured us that there were going to be some disciplinary measures. Um, however, what ended up happening was that my coach ended up at the Olympics the very next year. So I'm not confident that there were really any disciplinary measures um, put in place at that time. And then eventually he was in fact um, promoted to be the head coach of the National Women's Program a few years later. So there really were no consequences and they went on to have 20 year careers without really any, um, any critical look at their practices. Um, so unfortunately there really wasn't much of a mechanism to hold them accountable. Is Gymnastics Canada uh, communicating with you and the the other gymnasts uh, at all at this time? At this time, no. Uh, We haven't received any correspondence directly from Gymnastics Canada, either as Gymnasts for Change Canada, as our organization, and we have obviously sent letters. Um, We haven't received any response to those. I personally haven't received any um, correspondence from them since all of this dialogue has, has started. Um, which is unfortunate because we do want to work with them. I think there's a lot of insight that we can provide to help them uh, create policy change that would actually be meaningful. And this issue, uh, you're in British Columbia, but this issue, uh, I understand from the contacts that you've had, and over 500 people have now joined the uh, the, the, uh, the effort, um, this is national, yes? You're hearing from gymnasts all over the country. Absolutely. It's happening in every corner of this country. and. Unfortunately, it's something that's not just historical, it's happening right now. And that's why we feel such urgency to having an investigation, to having meaningful policy change enacted now so that children can actually be protected. Because right now, they're continuing to suffer these abuses every day. You addressed uh, the board and the CEO, if I understand correctly, of Gymnastics Canada almost a year and a half ago, yes? That's right. I I was invited to detail my experiences to them and in that process I wanted to bring forward some ideas for change as well. And so at that time I urged them to institute particularly two policy changes. One was to ban the practice of weighing gymnasts. It seems very obvious that we shouldn't be having prepubescent and teenage girls standing on scales and being weighed every week. 
the other thing was ban the practice of barring parents from watching practices because right now what's very common is that gyms say, well, parents can't watch, they'll interfere, they're too much of a distraction for gymnasts. And it prevents parents from really being able to see what's going on in the gym. So it's a huge safety and abuse prevention concern. Um, those two things, if they instituted policies today, would revolutionize uh, child safety in this sport. And unfortunately, to my knowledge, they haven't done anything to move forward with those steps. Now, I don't think you can in any way, any organization can substantiate a claim that parents would be a distraction. Parents should have the right to be present during practice and see what's going on with their kids. I was just still thinking, Amelia, about parents being um, uninvited, not invited to attend practices their kids are participating in. If I'm a parent and I'm not invited to attend practices, I'm thinking they're doing something potentially that they, they don't want me to see. That would be my first, and my first response would be, I'm going to the practice. I'm going to see what's going on. So, um, but, but as I understand it, the situation with Gymnastics Canada now is they consider themselves to be a safe sport leader. They've come a long way. And these situations that you're describing were historic in nature. However, uh, in our conversations, you've told me that you have had conversations in the last 18 months since you spoke to the board and the CEO with current gymnasts. What are they telling you? Yeah, I mean, I'm having uh, discussions with gymnasts who are very much involved right now, and they are telling me that these practices haven't changed really at all in the 20 years since I've been out of the sport. Um, parents are not invited to watch practices, and it's very um insidious the way that it starts you start out in the sport so young and so they say well you know it's going to distract them because they're so young they'll just want to cling to mom and dad and so you know you should just really leave we'll be fine it's okay and so it starts that young and then by the time they're in these elite levels and they're experiencing these kinds of abuses that type of exclusion of parents is so normalized that you don't even really question it as a parent mm-hmm. um, I know everybody is thinking this question before I ask it, but I'll ask you now. We are all aware, because there's been a tremendous amount of coverage, media and otherwise, of the situation in the United States with the U.S. gymnastics team and their former team doctor, Larry Nasser, who's now serving life in prison for sexually abusing um, gymnasts over a long period of time, many of them. I'm not asking you to name any names, obviously, but, but has there been, have you heard anything at all that leads you to suspect there may be sexual impropriety going on at some point that people should be aware of, could be aware of, maybe are aware of. Yes. Unfortunately, that's um, something that's been really surprising to me is that the prevalence of sexual abuse, at least anecdotally from what I'm hearing, is um, much more prominent than I expected. And unfortunately, we have had high-profile cases of some of even the national team coaches who have been accused of sexually abusing their athletes over a very long period of time. Um, and it's very easy to see how the physical and the emotional abuse can bleed into then creating an environment where sexual abuse is pervasive as well, because these children are essentially manhandled, spotted, coached in such a way that they don't necessarily realize that they have bodily autonomy. We were never taught that we could say no to what our coach was doing to us. We were never taught that we could say no if we were being forcibly overstretched. And so it's not that big of a leap to then imagine that a child who's never really been taught bodily autonomy 
and who has been taught never to tell their parents about something, it becomes very easy if someone wants to be a sexual predator to prey on this pool of victims that um, essentially will never say no and essentially will never tell their parents. And also, there isn't much oversight from the governing bodies to actually stop behavior like that. So it's kind of a perfect storm for sexual abuse. And repeat, you've had gymnasts tell you this has happened to them. Yes. Multiple, multiple people have come forward and told me that they experienced sexual abuse in their training. So we have the federal government, which has suspended funding to Gymnastics Canada. Prime Minister says he wants to know more. Fair enough. That's a good step to take. I'm just curious whether you believe or have any uh, evidence or suggested to you in some ways that various previous governments were made aware of the allegations of abusive behaviors toward gymnasts and just did nothing about it. So there's um, recently published emails between uh, the Jim Can CEO and the Sport and Sport Canada uh, from about two years ago, where the CEO said uh, they should be prepared for a wave of historic complaints to come forward, and there was discussion allegedly back and forth between Sport Canada and Gymnastics Canada at that time, and there was nothing done. Um, we know anecdotally, again, there have been people that have told me that they tried to go outside of Gymnastics Canada because they weren't getting any sort of uh, adequate response to their reports of abuse, so they tried to go to Sport Canada or they tried to go to the SDRCC, and they were turned back. So there, I think there is um, evidence for the idea that the government has known that there is a potential crisis in this sport and nothing has been done. Remind us what you want done. We want an independent third-party investigation into this sport. We want it to be done by a qualified judicial authority who knows how to conduct investigations like this. We want it to be trauma-informed and survivor-led. And we want it to have meaningful recommendations at the end of the day that result in the removal of perpetrators and enablers from the sport and actually allow us to move forward with substantial change. All right. Somebody who's listening to this program now who connects with what you're saying in one way or another, how can they get in touch? So please reach out to Gymnasts for Change Canada. Um, you can email us. You can find us on social media. We are here for the survivor community. So if there are people listening who have experienced abuse in gymnastics, uh, we are offering support in any way that we can. Um, and we're helping people come forward if they want to do that. And we can connect them too with other efforts like the, the class action lawsuit as well. So Gymnasts for Change Canada, um, find us on Twitter or email us as well. And the emotional stresses last for a lifetime. They do. Unfortunately, it's it's very clear that the uh, the impact of this abuse is, can be lifelong. I've spoken to people, as I said, who trained in the 70s, who are still in therapy, who are still suffering the after effects of this abuse. And I'm unfortunately also talking to 16, 17, 18 year olds who are saying the exact same thing. So the cycle is continuing and we have another generation that's going to suffer these effects now. Imagine this. I don't really know how to start this segment. Let me let me do this. The death penalty. So think about that. We've had a lot of discussions over the years about the death penalty, injustice, and justice systems. So the death penalty, is it ever appropriate when it comes to justice? Now, following the mass shootings and killings in the United States, most specifically talked about over the last couple of weeks, have been the killings in Buffalo, New York, at the grocery store, and uh, at Parkland school, school in Florida, the Parkland's school shooter is on trial now. He may face the death penalty. 
And uh, there's also the possibility that a Buffalo, New York jury may return the death penalty. Um, So is it ever an appropriate piece of justice, a justice tool? Ron Dalton is a former Newfoundland bank manager. He was found guilty of secondary murder of his wife. Now think about this. Mr. Dalton was 32 years of age at the time. Found guilty of murdering his wife, was sentenced to prison for life, Uh, was in prison for eight years when eventually it was discovered that he did not commit the murder. It took 12 years in all, in total, to exonerate Mr. Dalton, and uh, he is the co-president of Innocence Canada now. Ron, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I, I was trying to think of the first question I want to ask you. And the one that keeps coming back to me is this. What was the moment like when you were found guilty of, when you were convicted in court of murdering your wife? What was that moment like? I, I guess the best word for it is pretty devastating, Roy. It's a, you, you never expect to be found guilty of something that, in this case, never happened, but something that you didn't do. And, of course, that, that moment will be seared in my mind forever. I can always recall my mother in the back of the courtroom screeching. And, and uh, with, within an hour or so uh, of being found guilty, I was being shipped off to a, a penitentiary in Newfoundland, a provincial facility, to await uh, processing into a maximum security prison in, in New Brunswick. Newfoundland didn't then or still doesn't have any federal prisons. So here you were, a 32-year-old father of three kids, your wife had just died. You had nothing to do with her death. And yet they find you guilty of murder. And now you're separated from everything you know. And you're sh- shipped off to a maximum, well, provincial institution and then to uh, to a maximum security federal institution. Um, maybe we should talk a bit about it. I mean, I'm just trying to think of what you're going through. First, you'll lose your wife. And anyone who's uh, lost a spouse, right? If, if, there's, if there's any consolation, I, I always look back and said I had my biggest loss up front. Yeah. My, my wife of 11 years, uh, she was only 31 years old when she died. We had three young children. And, you know, she went to uh, get up one morning, and uh, before she went to bed that night, she had passed away. And I spent the night sitting up with my a couple of family friends and, and our family doctor trying to figure out how I was going to explain to... Uh, three young children, the two oldest children at least, were six and nine at the time. The youngest was only 18 months old, would never comprehend what had gone on. And, of course, I wasn't able to comprehend it myself, so it was difficult to explain to them. And then the day only got worse. Yeah. Uh, before 24 hours had uh, had elapsed from my wife's passing, I was in custody, and, and another five or six hours later was being arrested and charged with second-degree murder. I mean, it's just mind-numbing. You hear yourself pronounced guilty of murder by a jury while you're mourning the the death of your wife. Um, So you spend eight years in... What did did they uh, sentence you to, Ron? Was it life? Uh, If you're found guilty of first or second degree murder, you get an automatic life sentence. The only determination in second degree is, is the judge will set the minimum period you have to serve before you're eligible for parole between 10 and 25 years. And without having a sentencing hearing, he gave me the minimum sentence that he could. But that was a 10-year minimum before I'd be allowed to apply for parole. And I served eight and a half 
years of that before my conviction was overturned on appeal, and then a second trial was ordered, and that uh, took a little over two years to happen. So my wife passed away in 1988. It was the summer of 2000 before I was finally uh, acquitted. Good grief. Um, and if you really, if you really want to get a picture of how much time that involves, our six-year-old daughter had just graduated kindergarten uh, a couple months before her mother died, and I made her high school graduation by about an hour and a half after the jury came back in 2000. I was, I was in uh, Newfoundland, and, and she was living in Prince Edward Island with my family then, so I had a, a day and a half's drive to get there. The jury came back on a Saturday afternoon, acquitted me, and I spent... Uh, a day and a half getting back to uh, Prince Edward Island, and I got there about three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And she graduated from high school that evening. So oh, wow. people can just imagine what what goes on between the ages of six and eighteen, yeah. between kindergarten and grade one, all of the things that you missed, but that she missed as well, and and the other children, her brothers. You know, it was the yeah. first time in twelve years that she could look out in the audience and see a family member there, or see one of her parents rather. There was always family members there. I was kind of blessed that uh, my sister and brother-in-law stepped up with their three children to look after my ch- three children for 10 years when I wasn't around, mm-hmm. which is a better situation than a lot of people I, I encountered inside ran into, be they guilty or innocent. Yeah, A lot of them lost contact with their families and never uh, were able to keep in touch. So, yeah. in, in my case, I, as I said earlier, I had the biggest loss up front. But the best and worst parts about being in prison, certainly the the worst part was being separated from my three children. I was used to living with them on a day-to-day basis, and I would see them on approximately once a month for the next eight and a half years. But the other side of that coin is that was the best part, is that I had a focus beyond the prison walls. So rather than getting all wrapped up in all of the games that go on inside of prisons uh, of any level, but particularly in a maximum security prison, uh, I had something to keep myself focused on. There was there was something outside the prison walls that allowed me to uh, not necessarily accept but tolerate some of what goes on in in prisons. Mm-hmm. It was an inexperienced doctor who made uh, a grave error. It in, was, yeah. It was yeah. a hospital pathologist with, with no forensic training. This guy used to run the lab in a children's hospital and was used to dealing with tissue samples and blood samples and things like that, but had no forensic training, and as it happened back in 1988, and not much different today, uh, Newfoundland has very few homicides, which is a good thing, unless you're trying to develop an expertise in in that field. Mm -hmm. So he had very, very little experience. He had no training and had been appointed to the job uh, a year or so prior to that, uh, following the uh, air crash in Gander. So So he, he thought he had a homicide on his hand, literally testified that he thought he was uh, had a bit of Quincy, if, if you remember the old I do. TV show where the Quincy was the pathologist who yep. also solved the crimes within you know, 45 minutes, and he kind of thought that it was his job to not only perform an autopsy, but he should solve the crime while he was at it, and told the police officers who attended the autopsy that they should go talk to their husband, which they immediately did. And All that was required at the time was to get a second opinion from someone who was qualified. And we would find out 10 years later when we're preparing for a retrial that there was discussions among the police officers that night uh, about, you know, stepping back a little bit. There was no rush. I wasn't going any place. And, and if this had been a homicide, there was only my wife and I and, and our three children who were sleeping in bed that night. You know, I, I made the, the top of the suspect list had there been a homicide. 
Mm-hmm. But if they had taken the time just to confirm that it was a homicide, then none of this would have happened. And it was um, it was an experienced pathologist who uh, who eventually, after eight years, um, was able to testify well, was, in court. Yes, sorry to cut you off, Roy. It was actually nine experienced pathologists because at the first trial we called a board-certified forensic pathologist from Philadelphia right. to come up and testify saying the first guy was wrong. And at the end of the first trial, the local crown was able to turn to the jury and said, who are you going to believe, this local guy who did the autopsy or the hired gun from Philadelphia that looked at a few pictures? Given that kind of a stark choice, they said, well, we'll, we'll go with the local guy. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, when when the conviction was overturned, uh, I had a different lawyer who was uh, much more involved and, and not about to uh, to see this kind of a miscarriage happen again, and we literally went around the world and got the pathologist who wrote the uh, the textbooks. We ended up with nine of them. We went to Wales. We went to Northern Ireland. We went to uh, Vancouver. We brought the original guy back from Philadelphia. Uh, so we, we overkill, perhaps, but we weren't taking a chance the second time around. No. My first, my first trial lasted six weeks. The second one lasted nine months. Ron, uh, very, little, uh, very little doubt at the, at the end of the second. Yeah, trial. we have to take a break in a second. But your wife sure. passed away from from breakfast cereal. Uh, yes, she was she was nibbling on some uh, dry breakfast cereals or watching the uh, evening news. And got caught in her trachea, and she yes, well, passed I, away. you would. Back in back in the day, I would have thought you get an obstruction in your throat, you clear it, and, and you're breathing again, but. Uh, uh, as I was to learn, uh, the choking mechanism is much more complicated than that. Your, your yeah. muscles will actually seize up upon themselves, and people have literally choked on pieces of dust uh, or, or a little feather or something from a pillow. It, it doesn't have to be a physical obstruction to trigger a spasm in your throat that will close off your breathing. Yeah, I have to take a quick and break then we, here. Then we had a medical misadventure when we got to the hospital 10 or 15 minutes later. The local emergency room was... Uh, uh, under the care of a medical student from Ireland who was performing a summer locum, small town Newfoundland again, and uh, this poor chap was faced with the dilemma of either trying to intubate uh, this young woman who was having some breathing difficulties or wait and call in the anesthesiologist who, in a small rural hospital, would have been the one doing most of the intubations. And, and unfortunately, he didn't think he had the time to do it, which was probably the right call to call somebody in, so he attempted it but he had never intubated a live patient before and ended up putting the breathing tube uh, into her esophagus, leading to her stomach rather than into her trachea, oh, leading to her lungs, and then he sealed it in place, sealed her fate at the same time. And the, the poor hospital pathologist, when he did the autopsy the next day, called the ER guy down and showed him the mistake he had made and showed him the tube where it was still sealed into the wrong area, but still came to the conclusion that this was a a strangulation case, you know. That mm-hmm. Ron, it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. Absolute nightmare. Now, in other jurisdictions, you might have been sentenced to death, and you might have been uh, put in, to death. In many jurisdictions, yeah. including our own prior to 1976. Yeah. And you might have been put to death, death before that eight-year period was up. So there's talk about capital punishment in these cases in uh, in Buffalo, New York, and in uh, in the Parkland in Florida. What about the issue of, of capital punishment? You might have been put to death. Your great friend, David Milgard, who's on this program on a number of occasions as well and very sadly died earlier this year, more than likely would have been put to death. He was in prison for 23 years. There's always talk about capital punishment. Provide us a perspective, please. Well, uh, you'll, you'll never uh, uh, convert me to a 
proponent of capital punishment. Uh, David certainly was sentenced at a time when we still had a death penalty in this country. Before David, 10 years before David, David was sentenced in 1969. In 1959, we sentenced a 14-year-old to hang uh, you know, for a, a crime that he did not commit. We, we didn't have the political will to carry through in, in the Stephen Truscott case and actually hang him, but it wasn't because there was any questions uh, in the government's mind about his, his guilt. We've, we've seen the, uh, the discussions, the papers from the federal cabinet of the day when uh, Diefenbaker was prime minister and they're considering whether to commute this young boy's sentence or not, and he asks his justice minister who assures him there's no question about his guilt. The only question is whether politically we'll lose too many votes by hanging a 14-year-old child and they decided to commute it to life. Uh, in David's case, David was only 16 when he was arrested, and they didn't seek the death penalty at, at that time. But certainly uh, many of us, and, and there's about 40 people in this country now who have had wrongful convictions uh, for homicide overturned, and any one of us could have been put to death. Yeah. And we've had cases in, in the United States. I mean, I, I attend, uh, uh, they do an annual conference in the U.S. Uh, they have a network of innocence networks down there and they they hold an annual conference uh, until covid came along but i've met people who spent 25 or 30 years on death row just waiting to be executed until they were able to prove their innocence and we've had some that dna has proven were executed who were not innocent or sorry who were not guilty we've proven it after the fact right so certainly any time that there's any question if, if you can't get it right then you shouldn't be doing it at all uh, I would be morally opposed to doing it, period. I don't think anyone has the right to take another life, in, including the state or the government. Tell, tell me this. Um, the eight years you were in prison, and you know the system well after spend, spending all that time and being co-president of Innocence Canada. By the way, what's the, web, what's the website for Innocence Canada? Uh, InnocenceCanada.ca. Innocence .ca, .ca. okay. And actually, uh, when, when you're talking about this could happen to anybody, when we're fundraising, one of the, one of the T-shirts that we've created... 10 or 12 years ago now, was it, it happened to me, it could happen to, to you. Okay. You're, you're right in that. Yeah. InnocenceCanada.ca. Check it out, folks. Um, we only have 30 seconds here, Ron. Did you, did you meet people you became convinced were innocent of the crime they'd been convicted of and in prison for? I, I met a number of them while I was still in prison, including one that they had used the same pathologist in my case a couple of years after the fact. Oh, no. That, that pathologist from Newfoundland to Nova Scotia in a case where the gentleman's wife had been buried without an autopsy, and they decided a couple of years later that perhaps this was a homicide, and he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to a life sentence with a 25-year minimum to serve. Oh, my. He and, he and I put our heads together when I was working on my appeal, and shortly after mine we were able to successfully appeal his as well. Okay. Ron, yes, we'll, we'll have I've to... met a number of people. We'll have to pick this up again. We need to talk more about this. Sure. It's, it's very important. There was a protest in Ottawa yesterday. An estimated 250 Canadian farmers and their supporters staged a noisy rally supporting Dutch farmers challenging the Netherlands government and European Union regulation demanding nitrous emissions from fertilizer be slashed by 50% by 2030. This is how I understand it. To some, the rally seemed reminiscent of the February Freedom Convoy in the nation's capital. All right. Now, Canadian farmers, this is what you just heard and will be broadcast yesterday. 
Canadian farmers are expressing concern about the federal government demand for a 30% reduction of nitrous oxide in fertilizer. Remember what fertilizer does. It helps food grow. Uh, so they're asking for a 30% reduction in nitrous oxide in fertilizer. They're saying they're not asking for a 30% reduction of fertilizer, but experts are telling us that there's no way at present to separate the nitrous oxide from the fertilizer. So if you're asking for a 30% reduction in nitrous oxide, essentially you're asking for a 30% reduction in fertilizer, regardless of what you may be saying otherwise. Meanwhile, as many of you know who've been watching these developments, thousands of Dutch farmers have since 2019 now protested, as well as most recently blocked roads and highways challenging their government. Dutch farmers are supported by Netherlands fishermen, and the protest has occasionally turned violent, with police shooting at a tractor driven by a 16-year-old a few weeks ago. Caroline van den Plas is a Netherlands member of parliament. She's the founder of the Farmer Citizen Movement political party. She's a former journalist. And polling shows if an election were held today in the Netherlands, the FCM would win a significant number of seats in the national parliament. Ms. van den Plas, thank you for joining us. Yes, good afternoon. I assume it's afternoon uh, with you in Canada. It is. It is, At yeah. At least in good, your part of Canada. Yeah, good evening to you. Um, yes. so, so the issue really is about the EU regulation slashing nitrous emissions from fertilizer by 50% by 2030 and reducing significantly the number of livestock on Dutch farms. And this is supported by your national government. Do I have that correctly? Um, yeah, you have that correctly. Um, and also in Holland, um, we have um, a lot of uh, nature reserve areas. Um, and uh, we have to, yeah, we have to uh, look after nature. And also because of that, there is a reduction of nitrogen necessary. That's what the government says. And um, well, well, you have noticed in Canada that uh, leads to a lot of protests at the moment because the farmers here aren't sure if they can still exist, if they can still have their farms uh, by next year or in five years or in 10 years. There's great uncertainty and uh, great unrest. And um, I think like in Canada, uh, farmers um, don't feel that they are appreciated anymore for making food. So um, yeah, that's a big issue here in Holland. Right okay, so let me ask you this. What, what about the policy? What is it about this policy which would cause farms to disappear? I can understand the hardship in growing things. I understand that. There's also the issue of livestock. And, uh, you know, we've all heard the story about flatulence from cows being supposedly a major issue as far as climate is concerned. But what is it about this policy that is going to drive Dutch farms out of business? Well, the policy is like um, they want to buy out farmers. And if that is not voluntarily, um, the government says it can also, uh, we can also force them uh, uh, to a buyout. Um, and that's a big problem because, you know, and just like in Canada, farmers want to farm. Uh, farming is a lifestyle. And nowadays, it's just like uh, that people think, that farmers are making are producing nail polish, but they are producing food for the whole world. Yeah. And in Holland, uh, we're very good at that. And you should do you should produce stuff 
uh, in countries where you can do it um, very well, and we can do it very well here in Holland. Um, so it's not like that the farmers don't want to do anything for the environment. I mean, um, there has been a reduction of CO2 and of um, uh, nitrogen already in the past 30 years of 30 to 60 percent. Um, farmers are always innovating. They're always caring about their land, about their livestock, about their yeah, environment. Um, and nowadays it looks like um, as if the farmers don't know anything about farming and climate and their surroundings and their farmland. Everybody knows better except the farmer. And um, as I said, in, in Holland, there's been a great reduction already in the past 30 years. Okay. So, um, uh, and farmers can still do that, but farmers in Holland ask uh, the government to give them space for innovation um, and instead of just cutting back the livestock. Yeah, uh, and you want and more time. You want more time. more time. More time. Yeah, just like, just like um, a car, uh, a car industry or uh, the plane industry. Uh, they have time also to, um, yeah, develop new innovations, and everybody can innovate um, except the farmer. They have to cut back livestock. Right, Miss Van der Plas. Let me ask. Let me ask you this. So there've yeah. been there've been protests, very strong protests since two thousand and nineteen. And over the last number of months, more and more people around the world have become very much aware of the the volume and, the, and just the size of the protests in uh, in the Netherlands. Yes, thousands of tractors and um, and farm implements, equipment, on the roads, blocking the the highways, blocking the streets. There's been some violence. There was a a tractor was shot at by police. A tractor driven by a 16 year old. Um, talk to us about that. Just. Give me a sense of how how widespread the protest is, and how widespread the or how what percentage of the farming population of the Netherlands is actually out there protesting? Because I think that's important for us to know. Yeah, I think a great uh, a great deal of farmers is protesting, and um, not everybody every day because they also have to farm, of course, they have mm -hmm. to produce our food. Uh, but every day, somewhere in uh, the Netherlands, there is a protest, sometimes a little bit smaller, sometimes a bit bigger. Um, and I think about 99% of the farmers are standing behind the protests and the protesters. Maybe not so much um, the way of protesting sometimes, uh, like blocking the roads. Not every farmer uh, uh, thinks that's a good idea. The fact that they are protesting, um, yeah, there is great consensus here uh, on that uh, between the farmers, but also um, between uh, the civilians here. Everybody understands why farmers are fighting to, yeah, for their rights uh, to to exist and their right to farm. Yeah, it's, and, a, it's a survival issue for many of them, right? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, a lot of farmers also say, um, you know, I don't care anymore if I get um, a fine or I get arrested. I don't care anymore. I have nothing to lose. I'm going to lose my farm. I'm going to lose my way of life. I, I was uh, talking to a farmer yesterday, and his farm is in his family already for 15 generations. 15 generations. So that goes back to, to 1500 or something. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the farmers are, yeah, really scared that it's, yeah, going to, yeah, be taken away from them. 
Yeah. And there are, yeah, you can, yeah, you can do a lot of um, so, different, yeah, sorry. But no, I was just going to ask you, what's the, what's the alternative suggestion? You're the member, you're a member of parliament, uh, the Dutch parliament and the Netherlands parliament and uh, representing yeah. specifically the farmers issue. And as I said earlier, I read a story the other day that if an election were held in the Netherlands today, your party would significantly increase your numbers of seats. So it looks as though you have popular support in yeah. in the Netherlands. So what's the counter proposal that has been made by the farmers and is your is your Dutch is your your Netherlands government uh, listening at all or are they just doing what they're told they need to be doing by Brussels? Um yeah, the second. I think our government is just um pushing through um uh, what Brussels said, what, what Brussels says, what Brussels tells them to do. Um, and yeah, we see the solution in um, spending, like we have 25 billion euros here in the pockets to buy out farmers. Um, and you can use that money also for innovations. Farmers, there are so many innovations that can reduce nitrogen in a quick and, and a lean and mean way. Yeah. May I but stop you? May I stop you for just a second? There's something I want to understand yeah. here. There's 25 billion euros that have been set aside to buy out the farmers. Partly to buy out farmers. Okay, Um, partly. But there's, from the 25 billion euros, there is just 1 billion euros saved for innovations. That's just 4% of the whole budget. Okay, so what the the reason... I just... Sorry? I'm sorry, the reason that I'm raising this, and I apologize for interrupting you, but I think this is important. If they have this much money set aside to buy out farms, it doesn't sound like they want to negotiate with you. It sounds like they just want you gone. Yeah, that's the, that's the main feeling here. And um, the Ministry of Finance uh, just made some calculations a few months ago which said that it, um, um, with this policy right now, uh, about 30,000 farmers in Holland have to stop with their farm or uh, decrease their, reduce their um, uh, livestock. 30,000, we have 50,000 farmers in Holland. So there's hardly any farmer left in, in Holland. And the Ministry of Finance also uh, told the government this is a bad idea because it's going to cost a lot more money than the 25 billion. It's going to cost 40 billion. And you can also, um, the goals are set very high here. If we lower the goals uh, of uh, nitrogen reduction, then still you can, um, uh, then still you can reduce enough nitrogen to preserve nature and, you know, what is good for the environment. Um, okay, and it's I am not necessary to, to maintain with those high goals and yeah. still the government, yeah, they just push it through. Ms. Van der Plas, what are the what is the government saying? What would the if we had a government representative on with you right now, and you had made the points you've made with me, what would they say to challenge what you've said? To me, the only thing I hear back is, um, yeah, Brussels says so. Brussels says so. We have to do this. And Brussels, EU, we have to do this. But they are not willing at all to look at good solutions where we can keep our farmers and where we can keep our food food production in the Netherlands. Um, and it's just like you said, uh, Roy, it's just like 
they want to get rid of the farmers. That's the main feeling here in, in Holland. See, I've, I've, it's, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but this is, this is important information. The Netherlands, you are one of the most intensely agricultural nations in Europe, are you not? Yeah, yeah, that's so right. So you, you yeah. provide a lot of food for millions of people. Yeah, we uh, we call we call the Netherlands a stamp, and on that stamp we can produce a lot of high quality foods. Um, that is um, also for our own people, of course, but also for uh, great parts of the EU and the great uh, parts of the the rest of the world. And mm -hmm. people appreciate uh, the Dutch foods. Okay, if we're talking uh, about mitigating circumstances, what are what is what is something? What is a plan that the farmers have put forward to the government so far and said, if, if we choose this particular route to mitigate against what you're saying is the problem, what, is, what kind of solution have the farmers suggested? Well, what the farmers suggested, um, uh, for instance, is um, there are, there's a very good innovations at the moment uh, that can separate manure from urine uh, from the cows. Um, that's an ingenious system, and you can uh, reduce stickstoff, uh, stickstoff, nitrogen, stickstoff is a Dutch word. You can uh, reduce uh, nitrogen um, at farms um, by 70%. And um, that is one of the innovations that the farmers want to um, yeah, invest in. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand if there are innovations like that. And you can reduce nitrogen um, up to 70%. What's the problem? I mean, we have to reduce nitrogen. I mean, that is what Brussels says. Uh, that is what our government says. Yeah. If we have equipment who can, you know, yeah, do this, why don't we do it? Yeah, so if why do we have to get rid of our farmers? It has so much consequences for everything, not only food production. Yeah. But also the landscape um, in Holland is, you know, the farmers, the, the Netherlands looks like this because of the farmers. So I have um, about 40, I'm sorry, I have about 45 seconds here. What is likely to happen? We've seen all this protest that have happened over the last six to eight weeks. And they've been going on since 2019. Can you really quickly tell me how concerned you are or what might happen if the government doesn't listen? How could this escalate? I think this government isn't going to make uh, the end of the year uh, with this policy right now. That is, I'm going to tell you that before the end of the year, we have new elections okay. in Holland. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.